Ethnic time. Well, some are bad, they will go good. I prefer, always prefer to end with good. So being an intersex person, people don't usually understand what intersex is all about. My art practice has been exploring the intersection of being Aboriginal and queer. Our community, again, respecting our elders enough to fight for it, and that's pretty bestest. Best Day, Worst Day is a podcast where I get to know a bit more about some of the LGBTIQA plus artists and activists I've been really inspired by. I ask them to tell me about a good time they've had and a bad time they've had, and what, if anything, they've learned from those experiences. Their answers have always been fascinating. Just being able to make someone that happy to show that much love, that was that was probably one of the best things I've ever done. This is the first time in a very long time that we won. Who's doing anything in this era? This peer support project is supported by the Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network, Vic Health, and a proud part of Brimbank City Council's Work for Victoria Artists in Residency. This project touches on many topics like suicide, loss of loved ones, poor mental health, and experiences of hospitalisation. I don't know whether to call it major breakdown. Maybe that's the worst. <laughs> for a whole year, I was in terrible grief, and I did a lot of advocacy from that grief. Best Day, Worst Day, a podcast made in Nam on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. This is Best Day, Worst Day. Thanks for joining me. In this episode, I interview Claire Shiona, who is a DJ, bangers and mash, bisexual advocate, a diversity and inclusion officer, and a big fan of Judith Lucy, which you'll hear more about throughout the episode. Hope you enjoy it. My name is Claire Shiona. My pronouns are she, her. I am a Capricorn, a music nut, an avocado farmer, a cat mum, two times over, to two beautiful kitties, one of whom is here at the recording today. I'm interested in making big purchases that make me feel happy when I'm sad. I had to ask Claire a bit more about some of the purchases that she'd made recently. Yes, I I really love making big purchases to make myself feel happy and I know how complicated and capitalist that statement is but I I, um, find I have the insight to know that that's what it is as well so that's something that is a balance there. It started when we all went into lockdown in 2020 and I wasn't going out and spending my money on things that I would usually be doing like brunch with friends, dinners with friends, drinks, weekends away, whatever that might be. And I wasn't going on a trip to Europe that I had planned. And so I'd been saving up for this trip for Europe. And I was like, well, I'm not going to Europe. I'm going to buy a Spice Girl doll. And then one Spice Girl doll just turned into 15. And I've got another 10 to go before I have the complete collection. So that has proven to be Semi-expensive because some of them come from collectors that are in the States and I've got to pay international shipping and that's quite a lot at the moment. Another thing that I'm very proud of is my wireless coffee grinder and it's also a torch. So I plug it in like I would a phone and then it sits in the pantry. I press a button, walk away and it grinds my coffee for me. I can take it camping if I want to. Um, I used it at a stall that where Tomboy was selling some jumpers so we could like highlight the merchandise, the, the torch, just disconnected it from the coffee grinder and took it along to this market stall that we had. And I recently talked myself off a ledge of purchasing some um, earbud thingies yesterday only because... I just wanted them and I was like, no, that's too much. Check in with how you're feeling. <laughs> like sometimes you need to kind of like check in with how you're feeling rather than just like making a purchase. It's like why did I buy this 
torch that's also a coffee grinder because yeah because I wanted it but also maybe I was feeling a little bit inadequate for some reason <laughs> I was born at Dandenong Valley Hospital which is in the southeast of Victoria and grew up in a town called Upper Beaconsfield which is at the foot of the Dandenongs and at the time when I was growing up there it was quite small and I'm the eldest of three kids and went to primary school just up at the end of my street. When we moved there, the town was still recovering from the Ash Wednesday bushfires and that was a big part of our culture growing up. There was one week in February every year where the whole community would get together and have community week. Part of that would be to organise any fire safety plans for the street. So we'd all go together, you know, say, for instance, we go to Heather's house on the Wednesday night and all of the families in the street would get together and there'd be a plan and everyone would know the plan and everyone would know what they'd need to do. So even now, when, wherever I'm living, it's what's the fire safety plan? Where's the nearest oval that I could get to if there's a bushfire? And what do I need to take with me? Even though I'm not living in leafy suburbs, I'm now living in kind of an inner suburb where that might not happen. Living in a small town like that was quite interesting because you had that community support but there was also the aspect of everybody knowing your business. When I was nine years old, my mother passed away and there was no escaping people making that part of my identity of being the young girl whose mum had breast cancer and passed away. And there was no escaping the subsequent elements of my identity that then came along with that when the remaining parent of mine didn't cope very well with that trauma. That was really hard to escape and I think part of the reason why I decided it was important for me to move out of suburban Victoria and to London when I was 23. And I stayed in London for a couple of years and then I moved to WA for a couple of years. And that was really important for me to escape the way that small towns can sometimes enforce identity upon you and create a space and make some friends where that part of my life wasn't the centre of who I was. And when I ended up moving back to Melbourne. I think I would have been 26 by the time I moved back to Melbourne. I moved back to Australia to study and I ended up starting my degree at university. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. And I started that when I was 30 years old. So it took me a couple of years after I moved back to Australia to start that, but it started and it's progressing very slowly. When I moved back to Melbourne, I went back to an organisation that I had been working with for a little while. And I'd, since the age of about 21, I'd always worked in community service organisations, mainly drug and alcohol support. Uh, when I was living in London, I was working at a family planning clinic. I've also worked at needle exchange programs, crisis accommodation centres, detoxes, employment support organisations. And when I moved back to Melbourne, I started back into the organisation that I had been working with before I left. and. I didn't fall into better opportunities. I think there were moments where I backed myself to pursue opportunities that were more in line with my values and through that opened my world up to the queer community of which I didn't know I was a part of until I was about 31. Some people sort of say that you always kind of know but I didn't actually know because of the messaging that I had been getting from the world around me living in a small town there was no visibility there. There was a lot of homophobia there. And whether or not people knew that that's what it was, it was a lot of microaggressions that was a consistent message that this isn't what 
would be an easy path. And because I am bisexual, it was much easier for me to just attach that attraction to men and just kind of ignore the rest of it. So making, you know, backing myself in moments through choices I was making through my career led me to working at a LGBTI organisation in Victoria, which opened my world up exponentially. And now I am the National Diversity Inclusion Manager for a not-for-profit in Australia. So I'm very grateful for, you know, opportunities that have come my way and moments where I have felt strong enough to make decisions that support my skill set as well. I still feel like I'm a bit of an adolescent in that respect. I asked Claire if she thought that things have gotten better for bisexual people in the last few years. I do feel that there are more avenues for people to connect with community. You know, I'm only 33, but when I was growing up, there wasn't YouTube and there wasn't Facebook. MySpace wasn't a a place where there were community forums that I was aware of. I didn't know how to use the internet in a way that would connect me with community, but I have found that that can be a really helpful tool for connecting with people who have similar experiences to you. Those experiences may be not always bad, but just having that experience mirrored back to you can be a really positive tool. I asked Claire about her experiences doing radio. Yes, I have done some radio before. I've done a little bit of radio through the organisation that I was working with a couple of years ago. And then I did a couple of episodes of a show called All By Myself. It was a little concept that I had created with Triple Bypass, a community radio show on a radio station called Joy 94.9. So the concept of the show was to interview other people who had acknowledged their bisexuality or multi-gender attraction later on in life. And everybody got asked the same questions throughout and it sort of highlighted the different experiences that people can have at different points in their life, but how it all kind of comes back to the same key messages. I did a couple of episodes of that. Unfortunately, it started during the peak of COVID and I thought that it would be a really great tool for me, but it unfortunately highlighted a lot of my inner critic and a lot of my anxieties around not being good enough and imposter syndromes. And so I succeeded in failing in that endeavor, I think. And the team at Triple Bypass were very supportive of the decisions that I had to make for my own well-being and for my health to sort of pass that idea and that baton onto them to continue with. One of the reasons why I wanted to highlight the stories of people coming out later in life or people acknowledging their sexual orientation later in life is because when I was trying to find something like me, I couldn't find it. And I just thought, oh, wow, you know, like I'm a middle-class cisgender white woman who can't see themselves in the world. That says a lot. What I could find on the internet was great videos and great YouTube channels and all these great things, but it was coming from a space of people who were between the ages of 15 and 25. The things that they were talking about I didn't really resonate with. And so I don't necessarily feel that there is a lot of resources available to people who might have questions about their sexual orientation or might want to find community but not know the right way to go about it or not know the safest way to go about it or not feel valid in their experiences because they're not visibly queer, whatever that might mean. Another thing that is probably an interesting fact about me to introduce me is that I have an alter ego called Bangers and Mash. Bangers and Mash is a DJ 
And I say alter ego because if I'm feeling nervous about playing music at an event or nervous about going to a space I haven't been to before, I can just become bangers and mash. mash. It's like the invisibility sunglasses that go on. And it's I have so much fun playing music for other people. And I only play the music that I like because it's fun for me and it's supposed to make me happy. But in turn, I think when you're kind of true to your true to yourself and you're true to your passions, then you know, I've only ever had mostly good feedback about the music that I play. Sometimes people, you know, suggest suggest a song or request a song or something like that, but it's always within the same vein of the music that I'm playing. And I started DJing Bangers and Mash before I had acknowledged that I was multigender attracted and part of the experience of that was sort of going into queer events and feeling a little bit, feeling like an imposter, like why would people want this straight girl here? without actually realising that I wasn't that straight girl. I was something different. (laughs) Very excited that after a little bit of a hiatus, Tomboy will be coming back to the regular location that we've got in Melbourne's CBD. This weekend is also Pride March in Melbourne and we'll be playing at the SB after party, which will be great. And there's another gig that's coming up in June in regional Victoria. I'm pretty sure it's called Under the Rainbow. And it's a little bit of like a, a Ballarat's response to Dark Mofo. And so that's going to be super fun. So when thinking about, think about a bad day, I think like everyone else, I have a lot of options to choose from. We all feel like we've got too many options to choose from. And I thought about it a bit more and every bad thing any horrible thing that has happened to me, there's also been a bit of a juxtaposition of something really good that's come out of it, something that has been helpful, something that I've learnt. And so instead of sort of picking a a day on its own, I thought I'd think about some of the things that are hard for me to process or difficult for me to and have impacted my mental health in some particular way. You know, some of the things I was speaking about, about me as a person and my journey and that kind of thing, like that was pretty bad. You know, I'm coming onto podcasts, I might be going onto radio stations, I might be DJing at different gigs and events, but my grandmother doesn't know that I'm living with my partner and she's, I'm sorry, <laughs> there are certain people in my family that don't know that I'm living with my partner and that's quite hard for me, not because I think that they would be unsupportive in any way, I'm just I love them so much that I'm a little bit too scared to feel like I can be authentic with them for fear of being disappointed by any negative reaction that they might have. And I'm thinking about my my grand specifically. My grandparents are pretty pretty left. They they migrated to Australia in the 60s, came over on a on a little boat from Scotland. Probably wasn't a little boat actually. It was probably quite a big boat. And <laughs> with their three kids, and my mum was one of them, and they lived under the Westgate Bridge in the, you know, the government massive large water tanks and cut them in half and then plonked them in the ground curbside up, and that, that became tents, the, the makeshift kind of tents or huts that these migrant families lived in. And they lived there for two years under the Westgate Bridge, saving up money to buy a house and my gran always says to me that buying the house was the worst financial decision she ever made because she didn't get to spend enough time with her kids because she was paying off this house. And just, you know, little things like that and little opinions that my grandparents have, I know that, that they would just be concerned for my happiness. You know, there's that little voice in the back of your head that says, what if this woman who I'm very close with and love dearly doesn't respond in a way that 
affirms me to the level that I feel like I need to be affirmed by her. And also there's there's the risk as well because she's she's getting on that I might have to retell that story. And if I have to retell that story, what if I get a different response each, t- each time and I just want to have it make it happen once? You know, what I'm trying to say is it's a bad experience to feel like you have to announce who you are rather than people just asking or being accepting of who you are culturally, like as a society. To juxtapose that, I went out for dinner with my uncle recently and I was like, right, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell him that I'm living with my partner and everything like that. And we're walking down the street and he said to me, he's like, he just started talking to me like it was an assumption that I wasn't straight. And then we just sort of had like this natural conversation, which was really lovely. And I spoke to him about it and he, and he's like, you know, do you want me to start dropping hints about, you know, what kind of support do you need from me? So, you know, even though I I don't feel like I can be as authentic as I would like in every aspect of my life, I still have support from the right people around me as well. I fluctuate almost on a daily basis of whether I'll tell my grand, my, my, gr- my grandfather's no longer here on this earthly plane, but I think I fluctuate on a daily basis if I'll ever tell my grand. Like I call her on Monday nights and every Monday night I'm like, we'll see how we go. Or like I'll go to visit her and then I'll be like, right, let's try and put this out there and then something will happen and I, or something won't happen and I'll just, I don't have the courage. And then I wonder like, why should I have to have the courage? Why is it up to me to be courageous in that moment? I don't know. I don't know if I will if I will speak to her. I might, I might not, I might. And then if she asks me again or forgets, then maybe I'll, I've done it once and then that's enough. <laughs> I don't really know. It's a hard question. It's, it's a hard question to answer. And I don't think that there is a black and white answer to it for me at the moment. And maybe there won't ever be. And I think I'm okay with that because as I said, like, why is it up to me to do the telling? Why is it up to me to be courageous? I know that she loves me and I know that she supports me. And if that's the reality that I don't want to change or risk changing, then I don't want to risk changing that. I asked Claire about how her partner felt about the situation. In the beginning and discussing it with my partner, they were sort of saying, I'm not sure if I would be comfortable meeting your gran. I don't really want to go back in the closet, which was, you know, totally fine and very respectable decision to make. But then as we sort of unpacked it a little bit more and a little bit more, kind of said, I know that, you know, this person is incredibly important to you and I want to be able to support you. So I don't really mind what I need to do to support you. You know, and having that support has been wonderful and has been the driving force with me actively trying every week or most days to build up that courage. But as I say, it's just, it just feels like there is a lot to risk in trying to think about what kind of response would I be okay with? What kind of response would I be happy with? What kind of response would I not be happy with? And it's, it's, you know, the risk and reward, it's a very complicated thing for me to unpack. And I think that it, kind of sits within within the realm of biphobia. You know, what if it's, there's questions that come up that I have to answer that I don't want to answer? What if I'm not valid enough or good enough for this person who's very important to me? What if I'm not accepted? Which I think, you know, isn't specifically just something that multigender attracted people experience, but there is a little bit of a complexity there. Like, you know, what if she asks me, what about my boyfriends or if there's something about it that she doesn't kind of really understand. There's a a lack of binary there to explain, I suppose, is what I'm saying. My uncle is is a gay man 
And a few years ago, we caught up and I asked him about what that was like for him. And he kind of said like, well, mum and dad never asked and I never said anything. Everyone just knew. And so like coming out has never been a concept within that that side of the family. And so there's also the element of feeling like external pressures and how do those external pressures impact my internal experience and then my external experience with someone else. And so why the pressure of this coming out experience, which I think is also like a little bit of a generational thing. I'm not sure if people younger than myself even though I'm not that old right now, I'm not sure if people younger than myself who are like 15, 16 are having to think about that because I don't know if that's as much of an of a consideration for younger people today, especially maybe for younger people living in the city, like growing up in a rural area, there was the vis- visibility is different, difference is different, maybe the age that I am and, and that's just like this expectation that it's something that I have to do. It's not something that I have to do. It's something that I want to do is to be honest and be able to not maybe not necessarily be honest because I don't I'm not lying to anyone. I want to be able to share my whole life with the person that I love very much. All right, good day. So so when thinking about what story I wanted to share for my best day having moments of good and moments of bad and also feeling that there's a lot of pressure for people to strive towards happiness all the time and that's like a really hard thing to achieve to be happy all the time and like you know if you have one amazing great day then does every other day be pale in comparison to that day like some days can be better than other days I do understand that but can't every day have good elements in that day and can't be maybe every day has some not so good elements in the day as well. The flip side of what I just, what I've just been speaking about with, you know, sharing the whole of my life with my gran who I love immensely and those struggling with my sexual orientation outside of the youth age bracket was meeting a friend of mine who had a bit of a similar experience to mine and the more that I share about my insecurities or the more that I share about my struggles, the more that I learn that I'm not alone in that. And I remember one night we were out for dinner and I was sharing something offhanded and then they sort of said, oh, my grandma doesn't know either or I felt the same as that. And whenever we're together, it's kind of like I found this really wonderful person who's so intelligent and so funny and so kind And we're very similar in some of our origin stories in terms of our inner queer self and what that's kind of been like. Although nobody should experience any of those struggles, it's good to find that solidarity with someone that understands that appear support. And even though everybody experiences things very differently, it's nice to have that It takes the pressure off you having to be the only person that has to do this thing or the only person that has experienced your life the way that you have by meeting a peer who has experienced something very similar. And I really value, I mean, I value the friendship for a lot of different reasons, but I value that I can be vulnerable there and we can share aspects of our life that we can now laugh about. For instance, we were at an event, the Globe Awards, and there was this moment where we were both talking about our first award ceremony that we had gone to, not together, completely separately, completely separate years. 
completely separate times. We didn't know each other back then. And we both had the same experience of thinking to ourselves, oh my gosh, maybe one day I could be ally of the year. Wouldn't that be amazing? (laughs) And then years later, you know, this particular friend has like won a Globe Award and, you know, I'm attending Globe Awards with winners of Globe Awards and we're not in the same space but we had the same journey that's kind of brought us together and throughout the night we're making jokes about being great allies to the community and being ally of the year and what that meant and sort of being able to be vulnerable with one another and make light of it. It's just really nice to have people around that you can kind of share your experience with and have a laugh about something that might have might seem completely like irrelevant or ironic now back then yeah maybe there needs to be a new category former ally of the year or maybe there needs to be a category of failed ally of the year (laughs) best baby gay of the year (laughs) speaking of the friends and the impact that sharing with one another can have to help empower you or help validate you there was another person who You know, I might have shared a story about this particular comedian that I liked called Judith Lucy, and then they bought me Judith Lucy's newest book. And the origin of Judith Lucy and why she's important to me is like when I was entering into my 30s and starting to unpack some of the messaging that I had gotten up until that point and trying to figure out who I who I am and 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 what that who I'm attracted to that kind of thing I remember being on the couch hungover watching this Netflix special of Judith Lucy and just having this like epiphany that I don't want to be friends with the hilarious intelligent woman like maybe I want to be with the intelligent hilarious woman and so I call her my first celebrity crush anyway so I get this book which is such a lovely, thoughtful book. And it was like, I noticed a couple of days later that Judith was going to be at a a bookstore in Carlton doing an event for a radio station promoting the book. And so I packed the book in my bag and I went off to work. And throughout the day, I was like, oh, I might just check and see if, see if there's tickets to this event. So I got onto the website and the, the event was ticketed, which is fine. But the ticket was you purchased a signed copy of the book. So the book that I already had. I was like, I don't really want a signed copy of the book they already have, but I also kind of don't want to miss out on the event. So I was kind of tossing out whether or not I should go and I thought, I'll just go and I'll see if it might be possible for me to just pay and not get the book or pay and get the book that I have signed. I was at work in the office that day, so I got on the tram and trekked across town, got to the bookshop, was told by the staff at the bookshop that the event wasn't there, it was around the corner. And so I like found the event around the corner And I was maybe one of five people under the age of 50 in the room, which is like interesting. And (laughs) I found the event people and I was like, oh, like I've seen that there's events ticketed, but you you know, you get a signed copy of the, of the book with the ticket. I want to pay for the ticket, but I don't want the book. I have the book. The book was given to me by a friend of mine when I told them that I really liked Judith Lucy and Judith Lucy was my first celebrity crush and kind of like just overshared a little bit with them. (laughs) And the the event coordinator was like, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. If you hang back, we'll see if she can sign it for you. I was like, okay, great. Well, I'll I'll pay for the ticket anyway. And he's like, you know what? It sounds like you're a bit of a fan. Why don't you just go and take a seat and enjoy the night? So he like let me in for free and I got my wine and sat amongst the bevy of boomers in the room and like they started the interview and the microphone wasn't to the volume that the people in the room wanted it to be. It was a bit quiet. 
and about three or four people in the room were like, it's really quiet, can you turn it up, blah, blah, blah. And there was like a chorus of, can you turn it up? And then it got turned up and then it was a chorus of people complaining that the volume wasn't loud enough and they couldn't hear, but they were talking over the interview. So, of course, they couldn't hear the interview. So it was a really wonderful interview and then after that I hang back and I didn't actually realise that the books didn't come signed. I thought that they had come signed. So everyone's lining up to get their book signed and I walk up and I give her my copy of the book and she's like, oh, what's your name? I said, my name's Claire. My friend actually bought me this book. And she's like, oh, really? That's so nice of them. But she's thinking like, what, you didn't buy it tonight? Like you're supposed to buy it tonight. <laughs> That's so nice of them. I was like, yeah, because like I might have, you know, told him this story about when I was in my early 30s and I was watching one of your Netflix specials and then I realised I didn't want to be with the funny, intelligent woman. I didn't want to be the funny, intelligent woman's friend. I wanted to be with the funny, intelligent woman. Sort of like clutched her pearls and teared up a little bit. And she was like, oh, my God, that's so lovely. And I was like, so I'm just like a really big fan. You know, that was the moment that I came out to myself and I really love your work and your comedy and I think you're so funny and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, that's so great. So she signs my book and we get a picture and and off I go. And I got into the Uber on the way home and I open up the book and she'd written, to Claire, ladies rock, love Judith. (laughs) Yeah, it was very cute. I felt really grateful for that moment because like, I was umming and ahhing if I should do it and I backed myself and I just did it and I just like, you know, was authentic in my interactions with people and I wouldn't have ever gone if I didn't have the support of the friends around me to know who listen and, you know, when when someone kind of listens to you and they like, oh, you know, Claire likes that thing or that reminds me of Claire and then they do that little act of kindness and then I love how things can kind of flow on from those small acts that you don't think actually mean something to someone. They can mean quite a lot to someone. (laughs) It was really lovely. Thanks so much to Claire for sharing all of her amazing stories and thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. (music) 